All right, well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in a new series today, and we're going to start from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So turn to Genesis 25. We're going to be looking at about 10 verses, starting at verse 19, going through verse 28. That's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, then we strategically stack a couple Bibles underneath the seats there. So the middle aisle of seats has a Bible that you can grab and Use that as we're working through the scriptures, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, be, be uh, free to take that with you and use it as we're working through the Bible today. So Genesis 25, verses 19 through 28 is where we will be for today. And we'll read these out loud together. Let's read with me. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau, but he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a morning it is. It's a beautiful morning. Thank you for... Um, just the beauty of your creation. We revel in it. Thank you for a morning that we get to wake up and experience life, breathing uh, air into our lungs, seeing with our eyes, um, just all the, the things that we oftentimes take for granted. Lord, we thank you for them today. On this Mother's Day, uh, where our culture pauses to um, give thanks for our mothers, we thank you for those mothers here at the transit. We thank you for mothers of, of all types. Um, and, uh, and we honor them, we bless them today, and uh, pray your blessings, uh, not just today, but throughout the year. Uh, we don't want to take our mothers for granted. We, uh, all of us were born to a, a mom, and we thank you for them. Lord, as we open the scriptures to, to glean of your word, we pray, God, that you would meet us, that you would open our eyes to, to see this, uh, this life of Jacob as we are starting a a look at this biography, but more importantly, God, help us to see ourselves. Give us lessons of grace and faith and, and teach us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so one of my, not favorite pastimes, but it's, a, it's something I do often. I think a lot of us do it often. It's go to the movies. Uh, my wife and I will venture out, usually on a Friday in the morning, to see a matinee. We're cheap, so the matinees are the least expensive movie you can go see nowadays, right? And, uh, and uh, I don't just like the movies. All of the movies are pretty cool, especially in the summer. You get to see uh, some pretty cool blockbuster movies during the summer. I'm an action, action flick kind of, a, kind of a guy. But when we go to the movies, we're actually trying to get there on time because we actually like the, 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 the what do you call them, the previews, the trailers to go to the movies. Anybody like trailers? Now, obviously... Uh, sometimes the movie theaters can overdo it. You get there for a movie that's supposed to start at 10 o'clock and 20 minutes in, they're still, I mean, they're still showing trailers of, of upcoming movies. If you're not a trailer person, then, um, then probably uh, it's, it's inundating. You, you're, you're looking at previews for movies that are coming out in the future, like a year from now, um, and they keep showing them. They keep showing them, and it's just overkill. But if you like to know what's coming up, then the trailers are the way to go. And so what we're actually going to do today is we're being treated to a trailer, the, the trailer of the life of Jacob. And you don't want to miss this trailer. Like if you're a person that like gets to the movie theater late, 
so that you can miss all that stuff that comes beforehand. Or if you're watching a, a Redbox movie at home, you're going to skip through all the, the previews of movies um, at home. I mean, you don't want to do that here because in these first, actually 16 verses, we're going to only look at 10 of them today. We'll look at the other six next week. What we're being, what, what's being unpacked for us is really a, a preview of the life of the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob. And um, really, these first 16 verses, the 10 that we'll look at today, set the stage for the very next 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. More directly, they preview for us the, this, this, this integral figure in the story of redemption, uh, Jacob. And it talks to us about his future and the significance of of his life. I think this is an interesting um, thing to, to see in this text. You know, the, the, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you're looking for the life of Abraham in your Bible, then you start around Genesis 12, and there's, there's at least 15 chapters that talk about Abraham in a whole lot of detail. We don't meet Abraham until he's 75 years old. We see his life during those 15 chapters, and of course, there's uh, Bible verse after Bible verses, Old Testament and New Testament, that tell us a little bit about Abraham's life. The next patriarch was Isaac. We don't know, I mean, we hardly know anything about Isaac. It's, 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 it's surprising, actually. In fact, um, we're going to find out a lot about Isaac only because of the, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. Not really much said about him, even though we get to see his birth and we get to see his death. And then we get to Jacob. And here's the interesting thing, thing to me. We get to see Jacob, I mean, we learn of him before he's even born. We're, we're being told about things about Jacob while he's in the womb. And we get to see his life unpacked in these, in these 10 plus chapters in a little bit of detail all the way through his, his, his dying year at 147 years old. And I think that tells us a little bit about the importance or the impact that this young man has in the story of redemption and the, the lessons that we can learn from his life. Um, so over the next couple of months, that's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack the life of Jacob. We're going to look at his failures. We're going to look at a few of his successes. But ultimately, we're going to try to glean lessons of faith and of grace. And I think what we're going to learn more than anything else, the biggest lesson that we're going to learn is that we're like Jacob. Jacob struggled and he wrestled for grace his entire life. He schemed to find grace. He looked for it in all the wrong places, only to figure out that the grace that God wanted him to have, he had it from the very beginning, like right in the womb. And so I think we're going to learn from Jacob things about our own lives, ways that we struggle, ways that we try to, I mean, perhaps even lie and scheme and prod to get our way, the way that we try to twist and deceive God himself to do the very things that God wants us, wants to do for us. And in that, we're going to learn about the Lord's faithfulness to us. And so in our text today, there's two particular struggles that come out like right at the beginning. Um, and we're going to look at those today. And the first one is the struggle of barrenness. Look at verse 19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram the sister of Laban, the heir man to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So if you would do a survey of Genesis, Genesis is made up of, of 10 talidotes. That's a sounds like a, a weird word, but it simply means that Genesis is broken up into 10 major sections. And each one begins with this phrase that we see in verse 19. These are the generations of. And this particular section seems to be rehearsing for us the, the genealogy of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, um, to be sure. And it seems like it's going to get specific about Isaac and Rebekah. But what it's actually doing is giving us the integral details, the background of Jacob. And it's telling us about the story of his, of his birth, the struggle of his birth. Of his birth. Um, note verse 21. Um, particularly note the words that uh, Moses, as he's writing this, uses to describe Rebekah. 
The text doesn't say that she was beautiful, although we know from Genesis 24 that she was very attractive. The text doesn't point out that she was faithful to God, although uh, we will find out in many ways that both Isaac and Rebekah were, were God-fearers. They actually uh, loved and served God over their lifetime. But here are the words that the text uses to describe Rebecca. It says she was barren. And, and we don't know why this is the thing. That, that, well, actually, we do know why, but we don't know in, in this instance. But what Moses does is he, he says that, and then he seemingly moves rather quickly beyond that because it's the same story that we would have uh, been reading over the nine chapters previous to this as we unpack, as the Bible unpacks the story of, of Abraham and Sarah over the nine chapters that come before this. We see through Abraham and Sarah their struggle to, to have a kid. Uh, Abraham was promised that uh, he would be blessed and the nations would be blessed through him. And he, I mean, how do you, how do you bless the world? You, you have kids, you have more kids. And that didn't happen. And so we see some decisions that Abraham and Sarah made to make God's promise come about. We see the consequences of those decisions played out. But more importantly, we see their struggle with barrenness. And so what Moses does is when he gets to the story of Jacob and the birth, uh, the birth of, of Jacob to his, his mom, Rebecca, it's as if he says, well, well, ditto. In all the ways that Sarah struggled with barrenness, Rebecca is struggling just the same. And what I think the Bible is trying to get us to do is identify with, with those 20 long years of, of struggle, but particularly struggling with barrenness as her biological clock was ticking and ticking and ticking to, to, to the no avail of having children. And, and we can't dismiss this because this would have been um, this, would, this would have been a difficult position for them to be in in the ancient Near Eastern culture that they were in. This was a culture that if you did not have kids, that would have caused you spiritual shame. It would have been a particular difficulty for Isaac and Rebekah because of the promises and really the, the prophetic utterances of God in regards to the blessing of God that was to come from both of them. Think of Isaac. If you were Isaac, how could you forget being on Mount Moriah, of God coming to your, your dad, Abraham, and telling him, Abraham, I want you to go to a mountain and offer up your son as a sacrifice. And what does Abraham do? He, he obeys God. And he takes a couple servants along with his, his young son, Isaac. He finds uh, a place that he's going to create an altar. He binds his son up. He lays him on the altar underneath some wood uh, to, to perform a sacrifice. He's got a knife of some sort, and on the downward stroke, when he's about to obey God to the fullest, an angel of the Lord stops him, and God provides uh, an animal sacrifice, substituting it for the son that Abraham was willing to sacrifice. And we learn from Hebrews that, of course, Abraham was going to obey God because he believed that God was going to raise his son back to life. That's why we... Uh, applaud Abraham because of his faith. Isaac would have remembered the words that God spoke to Abraham immediately after uh, that sacrificial moment at Mount Sinai. Genesis 22, I will, bless, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." I mean, how could Isaac miss it? In order for Abraham to have offspring, they would have had to have come through Isaac, right? And through Isaac's kin after that. Isaac was the promised offspring, the direct promised offspring of Abraham. And so he would have remembered that promise. But think about, think about Rebekah as well. Abraham's servant had gone to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor to find a wife for Isaac. And he came upon a well and Rebekah comes out and um, it, it comes to fruition that she's the one that's going to, to be offered to, to marry Isaac. Rebekah's family was, were elated to know that they had family still alive. They were elated to know that Abraham was this family. They were probably like really joyous to find out that Abraham was rich and, they, and he had sent his servant back to, to get one of his own kin 
to, to bring her back to marry him. And, and as they were sending Rebecca out to go on this long trek to meet her new husband, Genesis 24 says this of Rebecca. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. I mean, think about that. This was the promise of God. This is the, the prayer, the prayer of blessing from Rebecca's family. Fast forward 20 years, she doesn't have tens of thousands of, of, of offspring. She doesn't have thousands of offspring. She doesn't even have a single baby. That had to have been more than just disconcerting for her. And so here's what we're brought into this scenario, and we're, we're asked to identify with her barrenness. Can you sympathize or perhaps even empathize with what this couple is going through? Can you see the longing and the struggle for a natural child, given the cultural experience that they are enculturated in? Can you, can you sense what they would have been feeling? They know what God's guidance is. They know the prayers of their family. They know the prophetic promise of God that's come by the covenant that's given to their father, Abraham, directly to Isaac and Rebekah, and yet they are still barren. God has said and God has not brought about. What they might be expecting would be immediate blessings. There's nothing but barrenness. And for how long? 20 whole years. There's some of you in this room that have not even been, been um, alive for 20 years. There's some of you that have only been alive for a little bit more than 20 years. 20 years is a long time to be hoping and yearning and longing for something and for it not to come to fruition. 20 years, if my math is right, 240 months, 1,040 weeks, 7,300 days of waiting and wondering. 20 years of walking into a room that you really, really, really want to be your nursery wanting to put up a crib, wanting to see your baby in that crib, but not being able to do so because God has not responded. And we're invited to, 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 to tap into that, to feel the angst of their bitterness. Um, it would be easy for us to speculate. I mean, this is an interesting thing. It's Mother's Day. It's, it's Mother's Day. And sometimes we speculate even, even today on why, why one person can't have kids, of why one person has so many. You know, there's a lot of women that they get a husband, but they don't get a child. And there's some that would rather trade the child for the husband. Isn't that true? I think in the history of our, of our young church, we've had several women who, who have, several women and men who have been infertile, and they don't know why. They don't know why they're not able to have a child. And again, we could speculate a lot of things but here's the point. The text, the text is silent. It, it doesn't give us a reason. We don't know why Rebecca was barren for 20 years. And, and we shouldn't read God's anger. We shouldn't read God's wrath on this particular situation. And you shouldn't read it into your own situation as well. I like what the Bible says in this regard. It says the secret things belong to God. There's some things that we will never know. Later in the Bible, we're told that now we see in part, but then at a future time when Jesus comes, we'll see fully. Why? Because he'll be fully known and we'll see him and the world that he's made as it is. But for now, there's some things that we just don't know. And I would say infertility is hard for any people at any time, whether you're here today or, or you're living 4,000 years ago when Isaac and Rebecca would have been living. And if you're struggling with this, here's my pastoral exhortation. Don't struggle by yourself. Don't struggle alone. Husbands of wives who are infertile, this is your opportunity to love your wives by, by not making them bear this struggle by themselves, but loving them by praying with them and bearing the burden with them. If you're a woman that struggles with infertility, then you need to share this with your church community. Share it with your community group. Don't try to dismiss it. Don't try to like stuff it in. I love being a pastor, but it's stuff like this that, uh, that I am acquainted with more often than I want to be that reminds us all that we live in a, a barren world. Barren not just from an infertility perspective, but barren in the sense that the world is, is more broken um, and damaged than any of, than any of us um, really know. 
And we learn that from this very book of the Bible. In the beginning, we're told that God made the world perfect and and he made us to be holy and happy. We were supposed to be in harmony with God and his creation forever. And then we're told that Genesis 3 sets, sets in and there's disobedience, there's rebellion, there's sin that happens. And Genesis 3 in particular sets the stage for Jacob's life and everything that comes after that. But Genesis 3 also sets the stage for the entirety of our lives, of living in a world that's not quite right, of living in a world that's broken. Whereas we're supposed to be happy and, and holy, whereas we're supposed to look at the world and see the beauty that God created, what do we see? We see things that aren't quite right. We see women that can't get pregnant. We see um, things that we want that we have to wait for. We don't know why Rebecca was, was bearing for 20 years. We don't know why the world is as it is. But what the Bible tells us is that we can't escape the impact of Genesis 3. The impact of Genesis 3 is that cosmic treason has set, set in the, the fabric of our world the consequences of rebellion, of, of betrayal, of disobedience, and of sin. And we feel this on a daily basis. There's pain in childbirth, there's frustration in your work, and then of all things, we die. Genesis 5.5 is, uh, is one of the worst Bible verses in the, in, the, in, the, in the whole Bible. It says that Adam lived 930 years and then he died. And that really is the lot of all of us. There's no one on the world that escapes that. We all return to dust. And so Adam had a son, two sons actually, more, more than two sons. But his, his primary son, the son that, would, that the, the world would be populated through, Seth, his son died. And then later on, Noah died, and, and Abraham, the number one patriarch, died. Moses died, Joshua died, Ezra died, Naomi died, Ruth died. Even Jesus, the God-man that, that got sent to earth to save us, he would eventually die, of course, to live again. But we're supposed to identify with this, this anguish of soul, and these ways that because of Genesis 3 and the sin that ensued, um, there, there's, there's broken parts of our earth that we just can't escape. And we're all shaking our heads saying, yeah, I've experienced that. I know what that feels like. There's no one in this room to, that to some degree doesn't feel the brokenness in our own lives and of this world. And so here's the question that we're supposed to ask in regards to this idea of brokenness, the struggle with brokenness. I mean, how do we respond? How do we respond in a world that's barren and, and that's broken? And I would offer that we respond the way in our text that we see Isaac and Rebekah respond. You know, Isaac was the father of, of Abraham, the patriarch, and we know what Abraham did. The promises of God took a long time in Abraham's life, and, and he decided to get ahead of God and help God. And what happened? He had an Ishmael. Interestingly, Isaac and Rebekah didn't do that. Look at verse um, verse 21. Verse 21 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And then what? And the Lord granted his prayer. Isaac waited and prayed. He waited and prayed. He prayed some more. And the Bible tells us that the Lord granted his prayer. Commentators describe Isaac praying as, as kind of relentless and passionate, as, his, as in he didn't see what he wanted to come about, but, but he kept praying until he prayed it in, so to speak. How are we to respond in a barren world? I think we're supposed to respond by waiting with patience, firstly. Waiting with patience. Isaac prayed. He didn't pray occasionally. He didn't pray indifferently. He prayed, firstly, by waiting with a lot of patience. And that's really what we're supposed to do. So, I mean, how do we do that? I think the truth is, I mean, I, I'm the most impatient person that, well, I'm kind of patient unless I really, really want it, right? I mean, wouldn't you define yourself as like, there's some things I can really wait for, but others, I mean, I want it right now. Like my coffee, my coffee comes out hot, but when I want it hot, I microwave it, right? I mean, we, and we want microwave live, so to speak. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just microwave everything and it comes out not just hot, but it comes out looking however you need it to look like. I just microwave it and there it is. Pray, God, would you give me this? Put it in a microwave. Poof, you got it. That's what we want. But many times, we just don't wait. 
I think sometimes we think that life is supposed to be um, like immediate and fast. I think sometimes we think that the life that God gives us, especially when we come to faith, is, is a paved road. It's fast traveling. We're like the Autobahn in Germany. God is in front of us. And so he's like pushing cars out of the way. And because this is a movie trailer, right, he's handing out popcorn and Coke for you to enjoy the journey as we, as we travel along. But I don't think that's real life. I mean, life is not like that. Life is full of waiting. Have you noticed that yet? In the army, they had this phrase, I'm sure they still have it, hurry up and wait. I can remember so many times of, of rushing to get somewhere in the army, like an airborne operation. You get to the hangar, and what do you do? You put your gear on, you get JMPI'd, and then you wait for like two hours just to get on the aircraft. You get on the aircraft, you, you fly around for a couple hours before you can jump out. You jump out, you jump on the ground, and what? You wait on the ground to get, I mean, to, to do whatever you got to do. Life is, is, I mean, it's just like that. We hurry up and then we wait. I think that the life that, that comes up, uh, about for many of us is a life that's, that's hard, there's hardship, there's difficulty. Life really should come with a warning. Like the, for those of you that have kids, you ever noticed a warning? You don't notice it. There's a warning that comes on toys. Guess what it says? It's like, it says, uh, it says, some assembly required, which, what, which means for that kid, it's hurry up and wait. You're gonna have to wait before you are able to use this toy. Our life comes with frustration and it comes with waiting. One pastor said, life is more like a crock pot than a microwave. I don't know who that pastor was, but he should just shut up, right? <laughs> and I think that's what we see in the Bible. I've said this already. Think about Abraham. Abraham was given the promise of God that God would bless him and that through his offspring, not only his family would be blessed, but the whole world would be blessed. And Abraham, although he even got in the way of, of God's promise and tried to, to make it work himself, Abraham still had to wait 25 more years before his son Isaac, the son of promise, was born. God makes us wait. Fast forward to the patriarchs. They were in, they're in slavery in Egypt, and then they're freed by the deliverer of Moses. They go to the wilderness, and guess what happens? They're made to, to walk around, waiting and wandering in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Forty years. In the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene. He's doing miracles. The disciples start to kind of sort of believe that he's the Messiah that's going to uh, avenge, uh, avenge them of all of the, the wrong that's been done to them. He's going to uh, kill all their enemies and promote Israel as the biggest and baddest nation on the earth. But then what happens? They find out that life following Jesus is hard. Not only that, he tells them, if you want to follow me, then you got to lose your life, pick up your cross to follow me. And then of all things, Jesus dies. And then in Hebrews 11, we read that these believers were tortured and beaten for their faith and they didn't even, even experience the reward of being called children of God. And so, I'm not, this is not a, a, a gloom and doom kind of a sermon. I mean, there's hope in God. You only have to read the Bible from any perspective. You could turn to anywhere in your Bible and read it. And you find out that God is a good God. That God is a faithful God. He always keeps his promises. He's faithful and he's true, the scripture tells us. But here's the truth. God makes us wait. Have you all noticed that about God yet? If you haven't, wait. Wait a little bit. God makes you wait. God takes longer than most of us would like when we are asking him for things. And I think all of our temptation is to take shortcuts instead of responding with faith. And, and, and that's really what God is requiring. He's requiring us to respond and wait with patience. But there's also something that Isaac and Rebecca did, and here's what it is. They prayed with persistence. Here's another interesting uh, fact about our text here, really the story of, of the patriarchs. Um, this is the third generation in a row that would, uh, in this covenant family, that struggles with infertility. And I think we have to ask, I mean, why is this, this pattern going on in Genesis? And I would offer you, because obviously we see it played out, um, what's being displayed for us is an eternal truth. And here's the eternal truth, that God's covenant blessings do not come by natural means. Man in and of himself 
cannot produce righteousness. It requires supernatural activity of God. And this is a parable. It's a true parable being told through hundreds of years. And the parable is, is such that granting the granting of physical life is a parable of granting spiritual life. Salvation doesn't depend on any of us, our, of our human ability, of our power to do things, but it depends solely on the sovereign grace and the goodness of God. And so how do we respond? What did Jacob, what did uh, Isaac and Rebecca do? They, they prayed. They prayed. Because here's what prayer is. Prayer is the ultimate expression of our dependence on God. And we should pray, I mean, every day, because we have a real sense of our need for God. Uh, I don't know if this is ever, you, have you ever heard, heard this, but if not, this is my offering to you this morning. You know, sometimes you're going to pray, and God's going to give you that very thing that you asked for, and he's going to give it to you immediately. Sometimes you're going to pray, and it might be delayed, but you'll, you'll see the thing that you've prayed for in your lifetime. But there are actually some things that you're going to pray, and you're going to pray, and you're going to pray, and God will be responding to you, but you'll never discern what the answer is. You know, a lot of times we think that we can just go, go to God like he's the MGM in the sky. We can put a couple coins in. We can uh, pull the hammer down, the arm down, and then out is going to flow all the answers to all of our prayers. But, but that's not who God is. He's not the cosmic um, prayer answerer in, in, in the sky. God is a good God, but I think this is true. God gives us what we need, but he gives it to us when he thinks we need it. And I think in this situation, God heard the prayers of Isaac and Rebekah and, and miraculously they conceived. But that's, that doesn't end the struggle. And that really is the, the second struggle that we can identify from our text. So there's a, a struggle of barrenness. But there's also a struggle of conflict. Look at verse 21 again. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to the inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Um, Notice immediately the, the, the babies are, are struggling. They're jostling inside the womb. And I remember having our kids and how, you know, one foot would like push, push out, you know, from the womb and you can see the foot. But can you imagine like, like your stomach moving and all that stuff going on? That would like freak me out. I would, um, thank God I can't get pregnant. Um, the Hebrew word for struggle uh, means bruised or, crude, uh, or crushed. Bruised or crushed. Women, why in the world would you want that to happen to you? Literally, it suggests that there's a battlefield going on inside of Rebecca's womb. I mean, these, these kids are fighting inside of, of her belly, um, which means Rebecca, I mean, she was having a hard pregnancy. Now, there's a few of you because I, you know, we have a lot of, lot of kids in our church, and, and, and we're on this second cycle that I can re recall of a lot of y'all having kids. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a few of y'all pregnant right now. Um, and I know some of you have had hard pregnancies. My wife's, all three of our pregnancies were hard, and then she had cesareans to deliver those jokers. Um, um, and so I know what a hard pregnancy is. And it would be, it would be easy to, to assume that your pregnancy was a little harder than Rebecca's because of whatever you went through. But think about what the Bible tells us about Rebecca. In Genesis 24, we're introduced to Rebecca, and she's the one that it says went out and um, gave the camels of Abraham's servants water. Okay, that's a significant fact because ancient ancient Near East custom is a camel drank about 25 gallons of water, and he had like 10 camels. That's what the text tells us in Genesis 24. So can you imagine that would have taken her like a couple hours worth of, of labor? To, to go and feed water to all of, of these camels. Um, that was a lot, of, a lot of work. And so 
Um, here's what I think is, is being said about Rebecca. I mean, she was tough. She was tough to handle uh, a hard pregnancy. More than tough, though, I can imagine Rebecca's like this P90X, hot yoga, kind of a CrossFit, like tough and beautiful kind of woman. Because, I mean, that's what the Bible's saying to us. She had this difficult pregnancy, but she was able to handle it. She's got these two wild cats wrestling inside of her belly. Um, and all of this is happening right in front of her. So much so that she would say, Lord, all right, I pray for the promise of God. It's happening. But why in the world are you letting them fight in my belly? This is crazy. And then, of course, God tells us what's happening. He tells her what's happening. He says, all right, Rebecca, you're having twins. There's boys. They're going to be two great nations. And unfortunately, these nations are all going to fight. They're going to fight forever. And so what happens? Fast forward. Um, the, the one kid, Esau, ends up being Edom, a great nation. And of course, Jacob ends up being Israel. And Israel and, and Jacob would, would be uh, Israel and Esau, Edom, will, will dominate the, the next 10 chapters of, of Genesis. And of course, Part of that domination is we're going to see they're going to be in conflict for all the days of their life. Constant conflict. But here's what's funny about this, this, this story. It's the description of these two boys. Uh, it almost makes you want to laugh. First you got Esau. Esau's the older one, and he comes out looking red and hairy, almost like this. You guys know? I mean, seriously, that's, that's kind of what the description looks like. Uh, um, if Esau had grown up in my neighborhood... We would have called him Big Red, all right? So Jonathan, my oldest son, is a Star Wars fanatic. And, and if, if Esau had been, you know, casting for Star Wars, it would have, I mean, he would have been Chewbacca, right? Just this hairy, red, big, big kind of a thing. Um, we're told that Esau, uh, um, he, he's, he's like rough. Um, if he's, he's given, we get the, the idea that, that he's a man's man, that he was a hunter, that he would have gone out hunting for game. He would have brought that wild game back. He would have cooked it. He would have ate it rare, like with the blood still running from it, like some of y'all crazy people eat your, eat your meat. Um, I mean, he was ruddy. That's, that really is what his name means. That's what red means. Uh, and that's not a, a put down. That's a compliment. It's the same name given to David when he's a, a young man killing bears, um, grabbing lions and pulling their, their mouths apart and, and killing giants. And uh, I mean, I, I think it's, it's fair to say Esau was a dude. I mean, he's a dude everybody would have liked. But then you got Jacob, and Jacob is different. Jacob comes out grabbing his brother's heel. Uh, not even out of the womb, Jacob is trying to, to, to scheme to get ahead of, of those who are in front of him. And that will play out for really the rest, almost the rest of his life. Jacob, he's, he's holding the heel of his brother, uh, which is what the name Jacob sounds like in Hebrew. He's constantly trying to get ahead by devious devices and schemes. And that's why his name is called overreacher or more, more prominently deceiver. Personality, though, uh, we would call Jacob uh, a mama's boy. And I got to be careful here because my wife reminds me I'm a mama's boy. I am. I'm, it's true. Uh, I spent 20 years in the army, but I can't hunt a lick. All right. I can shoot a gun, but I wouldn't be able to hit anything. Um, and so this is a, this is over stereotypical. But I mean, Jacob is the kind of guy. I mean, he drives a Prius. He's drinking herbal tea. Sorry, Joseph. He, he watches reruns of Oprah as he's baking cookies. And, and so much so, as we get a little, a little bit further down in the story, we find out Isaac, his dad, sides with Esau. Why? Because Esau is a hunter. And he's like, he can cook his dad some, some good meat. And because Jacob's a baker, his mom favors him. And it divides, the, it divides even the family. And so his dad is saying, like, what's wrong with him? And so what the description of the two boys brings up is, is another pattern that we will see played out in in Genesis, and it's the pattern of conflict. Um, we will see significant conflict in this covenant family throughout all of Genesis and really throughout all of, 
of the Old Testament. And it begins, I mean, way back. It begins with Cain and Abel. It goes to uh, Isaac and Ishmael. We see it in Noah and his sons. We s- we'll soon see it with Jacob and his soon-to-be father-in-law, Laban. We see it with Joseph and his brothers. I mean, capital C, conflict. begins. I mean, it starts at the beginning and it goes on to the end. And unfortunately, we actually see that through all of humanity because of these uh, these first people, I mean, conflict uh, ensues us all. And it starts in Genesis 3.15. It starts with what? It starts with the curse that God cursed the serpent with. What did he say? He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I think from this, conflict is inevitable in all of our families. Perhaps maybe even in your family. Perhaps you've seen conflict amongst you and your parents or you and your siblings or you and um, your own children. And so what we're being invited to is to, to, to understand how to respond in conflict. We're not told exactly how to do that in our text, but there is one thing that we're, we're invited to see, and it's to see how God responds to Jacob in the ensuing conflict that he will have throughout the course of his life. And this is how God responded. It's in verse 23. It's subliminal. Here's what verse 23 says. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And the and the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so, I mean, of, of course, it's a subliminal message, but this is the pattern that we see. It's it's a reversal of the norm in that culture. Actually, it's the reversal, I think, of the norm in our own culture. This It, it would have been uncommon for the younger brother to be promoted above or to be given an inheritance above the older brother, the older sibling. Because if you were older, it was expected that you would gain all the inheritance, that everything that was your father's land and all that he had amassed and the responsibility of taking care of it would have been bequeathed to you. But what's happening in our text, it says that um, this young man, Jacob, would at some point surpass his brother, Esau. And it's being prophesied from the womb that that would happen. And of course, we see that played out in the lives of these two young men. And so here's the lesson. And now I'm getting close to the end here. I mean, how do we live in a fallen world? I think two ways that we're being seen from this text. The first is pos- the posturing of grace, the posturing of God's grace. And secondly, responding with faith. Posturing with grace, that's, a, that's a, a strange term, but here's what I mean by that. It's the unusual pattern of God of choosing the younger over the, the older. Think back to what we've experienced if you read through the book of, of Genesis. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Rachel over Leah, soon to be Joseph favored all of, over all of his brothers, Joseph's sons, Ephraim over Manasseh, and here, Jacob over Esau. And we have to ask, I mean, why is, why is God causing this to, to come about? And what the Bible is emphasizing is one thing. It's a big G word, grace. There's, it's called other things in other places of the Bible. In Ephesians 1, it's called election, the fact that God chooses. In Romans 9, it's called God's sovereign choice. But here is the truth, if we're honest. I think many of us, I mean, we don't choose like God chooses. If we were looking at Jacob and Esau, there's very little from outward appearance or even internal attitude that would cause us to choose Jacob over Esau. But the Bible tells us God doesn't choose the way that man chooses. God God looks not at the external, he looks at the heart. More importantly, God is choosing based upon the, the decree of, of his eternal will. And so God chooses Jacob. God chooses because of his grace, but God therein does choose. And one of the major lessons that we'll see throughout this whole sermon series is that God's grace and the resulting response of faith from, from people like us triumphs over Jacob's sinning. It triumphs over his scheming. It tri- triumphs over all the ways that he plots to get ahead. But here's the bigger lesson, and this is a lesson for us. The only reason why you and I are in the family of God is because God chooses. God chooses to set his love on us. And for that, you should be thankful. For that, you should be grateful that you are a great recipient of God's gracious 
grace. And here's the thing, at least in my life, if you understand what grace really is, I mean, you realize that it's, it's scandalous. Grace divides the world into two groups of people, and it's not what you think. It's not that grace divides us into good and bad or those destined for hell or for heaven. Grace divides us into those who are forgiven and those who are unforgiven. What that means is, and this is scandalous, you can be a serial killer in prison, on death row, getting ready to be executed for your crimes. And yet the Bible would say in John 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you serial killer can be saved and at some point you will stand in the presence of God forever that's scandalous grace folks and that tells us grace cannot be contained but here's what else grace is not exclusive it's inclusive grace isn't just for good people because there are no good people on the planet there's only people like you and me grace is for all people one of the marks that we should, uh, that should be evident in our lives because we're great recipients of God's gracious grace is humility. And so being a recipient of God's grace says that you walk this earth knowing you're chosen, elected of God, part of God's sovereign choice, but you do it with humility. Why? Because you didn't do anything to earn it. God chose you because he decided to choose you out of his grace. We should be humble. When people see and, and know of our church, they should think that we're the most humble people in all the world because grace is what we've received, even though we've been woefully undeserving and it's, it's God's grace is unmerited towards us. And so here it is. I mean, we posture that there's the posturing of God's grace, but there's also responding in faith. And this is the second way should we, we should think about responding to conflict, to respond in faith. And this what I would offer to you is we need to respond the opposite way that we will see Jacob respond between Genesis 25 and Genesis 35. From the womb, Jacob is, is grasping the heel of his brother. He will at some point surpass his brother, but he will, he will gain the blessing of God. But he, he still will connive and deceive to try to make the very thing that God had promised from the womb come about. Instead of responding simply with faith, knowing that God is going to be true to his promise. I think some of us in this room may think that Christianity is only for good people, but that's a, that's a lie. And we shouldn't we shouldn't believe that the gospel is for all of us. The gospel is for you. And there are no other kind of people except people like you that need the overwhelming grace of God. All of us should be running to Jesus. Why? Because we're not good people. We're people who don't merit God's favor, but he gives it to us because he's, he's chosen us. And so we respond in faith. We don't respond. We don't deserve God's grace, but he gives it to us. Jesus comes and he stands in our place and gives us God's righteousness. It was for sinners that he came to save. And that's the good news for us. You qualify. You qualify for God's grace. Why? Because you're living and breathing. Paul says in Romans 9, God chose Jacob not because he was good, but because of his grace, so that God would gain the glory. And that's the same thing for your life. It's not that you uh, can lord over other people because God chooses you or he's set his affection on you. You don't get to brag about it. You just get to receive it. I'm a, I'm a great recipient of the gracious grace of God. That's the promise that's been made to you and me, a covenant of grace. And it's what we see in, in, the, in these texts is Isaac cried out to God and God answered his prayer. And here's the, here's the promise. If you're here today, the, the promise of God says if you would cry out to God in your barrenness, the barrenness of your soul, that God would hear your cry and he would give you his grace even today. That's something you don't have to wait for. It's, it's, God will answer it immediately. And all you have to do is respond with faith. And so Transit Church, we live in a barren and conflicted world. And I'll, I'll end with this. You know, the struggle is real. There's none of us can, can escape all kinds of struggle. And I'll repeat this. If you're a, a woman on Mother's Day struggling with, with barrenness, then know that God loves you. Your identity is not 
connected to your ability or inability to have kids. God loves you because you're an image bearer. You're an image bearer of a great God that set his beauty in you. But here's the good news. We have the hope of a redeemer. And so let's wait with patience. Let's pray with persistence. And more, more importantly, let's love one another with grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of, of Jacob and the beginning of his life, of his parents, of their patient waiting and praying for the promise of God to happen. God, there's a lot of things that many of us in this room are, are waiting for. Some of it we're waiting with patience. Some of it we're just waiting, biting our nails, hoping it's going to come to fruition. We're wanting to make it happen, but we can't. If we could, we would do it in our own strength, but we can't. So God, I pray for your help. Would you come alongside those, especially those who are barren, barren with infertility, barren because there's something that they woefully need and want in their life. There's something that they woefully are crying out to you for that you would heal or make happen in their life or perhaps their extended family. And they're crying, waiting for an answer. God, would you respond? Would you give them the courage, the endurance to wait with patience, to respond in faith? God, would you help us in the conflicts of our lives? Conflict is going to happen. Thank you for the, the, the picture that we see, not of Jacob's response and of his future response in all these texts, but more importantly, of your response towards us. You love us with grace. Lord, we hold out our hands and we receive it. We acknowledge your grace. We receive it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And amen.